I'm currently recording this podcast on Washu, Nomo, and Noe land. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the True Gay Icon podcast. This is a podcast about me, Jamaluddin Abdurrahim Braghouthi, and my life growing up as a queer Muslim Palestinian in America. If you missed out on my first episode, I talk about my journey to finding representation and finding stories in voices similar to my own. You can check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. Today's episode has been really difficult for me um, to record, and I have actually started multiple times, the first being the day that I published my first episode. And I want to talk about Palestine in this episode, and I want to give a, some perspective um, by telling my story uh, a story of mine, that is. <laughs> and it's the story of the first time that I remember going back to Palestine. And I say remember because the first time that I went to Palestine was when I was an infant. And so while there were some things that happened that kind of definitely set a tone um, for the way that I was raised, it isn't the same as being able to remember it. And I've had a hard time telling this story because I wasn't sure if I had to give more background information to people um, who may not be aware of really how Palestinians live and what the experience is like um, on the ground. And so, I tried to capture a lot of historical information and summarize things that ended up honestly being really triggering to me and digging up a lot of um, emotions and feelings that I just haven't processed. And so it's taken me um, a lot of different tries and a lot of talking through the story that I want to tell as well as the history that I don't want to tell Um, to be able to finally find a way that I feel like I could share just a glimpse of, of the experience of being Palestinian. And hopefully um, I can continue <laughs> to kind of share it piece by piece. I think I bit off way too much. For me being Palestinian, it's really hard. It's hard to identify like when... I became aware of the position that Palestinians are in. I've always known that there's a level of injustice and it's really hard. That being said, I had a very close person help me record this episode. And so it's in a little bit of a different style. I'm going to try and not do too much editing just because I'm trying to just put it out there exactly as I tell it. And so I sat and told the story that I wanted to tell to someone while recording it. And 
content warning now. It is difficult. It is hard to listen to in some parts, and there are pauses and um, you you might cry, <laughs> and that's okay. And I am continuing to work through the things that I will talk about, and I'm always open uh, for feedback on my content as well as on to just to hear from you if you have similar experiences and you want to share i would love to hear it you can reach me uh, by email at truegayicon excuse me my email address is truegayicon at gmail.com you can also reach me on instagram um, at truegayicon so before we get too much into it i didn't want to like splice this in anywhere so i will just kind of say it now i didn't focus on the things that i loved about going to palestine when i start telling my story um and there are so many beautiful things about palestine both you know geographically as a land it's beautiful but the people the culture the sights the smells the sounds etc and I was really moved by being in a land that I felt so connected to my whole life that it was almost deafening. Like I couldn't focus on anything that was happening because I was in such awe. We went to Jerusalem and went to Al-Quds and prayed in the Dome of the Rock and had all of these really beautiful experiences. And, you know, throughout them were was woven these interactions with the Israelis. And at the same time, I got to meet my grandparents really for the first time um, as, a, as a cognizant human being um, because they had, anyway, I'll explain more in the story itself, but I just want to say that my parent, my grandparents are beautiful people and I really love being able to know a little bit about them and see myself in them just from being able to interact with them the handful of times that I have been able to and I treasure each memory that I have my grandfather unfortunately uh, is no longer with us and um, this whole episode is really really sensitive because the reality for so many Palestinians is that we don't know if we will ever be able to go back. And the simple fact is that this podcast alone could be used um, for a reason to prevent me from returning to ever see my family again. And so it's hard. Um, but I hope that you learned something and enjoy. Hi. <laughs> um, uh, I went to Palestine in, in 1993 or 1994 or something like that. Like I was too young to remember. And then my grandparents came and visited once. Um, they visited us in Hobbs, New Mexico. And there's a home video of me complaining that, like, all they do is speak Arabic. <laughs> I was, like, annoyed that they just 
wouldn't speak English. Um, and my, I had like a few cousins that were able to come for like vacation every once in a while. And we had an uncle who came and lived with us for a while while he was getting his degree and like a cousin who did the same. And so I always had like family, um, coming and going and like a connection to Palestine, but it's a lot of money <laughs> to get there. And so we didn't go again, or I didn't get the chance to go again until 2006. And we went in the summer. It was me, my brother, and my sister, and then my dad. Or one of my sisters and my dad. And my sister had just turned 18 and graduated high school. I think my brother had just um, finished like 8th or eighth grade going into ninth grade and I think I was going into like the sixth or seventh grade and so babies <laughs> all of us and we had planned on going for a month and we were going to spend two weeks in Jordan and a week in Dubai and two weeks in uh Kufarain in in Palestine and I was so excited to like not only the first time that I'm really traveling, but I'm like traveling or like aware that I'm traveling, you know, but I'm traveling a lot. And I was even more excited because we were going to have a layover in Germany. And one of my closest friends at the time, like his mom was German. And so I felt like it was so cool. I was like going to Germany, even though I was not leaving the airport. Um, and it was my first time on a flight. <laughs> and it takes collectively like 30 hours to travel there, but it's like a 12 or 14 hour flight, like at one point from America to, I think we flew to Frankfurt, like from San Francisco. And so that was kind of miserable. Um, but we got to Jordan and I just like... I don't know, I was in awe of how much city there was, I guess, in Jordan, because, like, my view of Palestine, uh, of the Middle East, I guess, was um, the village and just, like, what I had seen, and so I didn't know there was so much city, and Amman, the capital city in Jordan, is, like, three million people, and it's huge, there's, like, you know, skyscrapers and all of these things. I mean, maybe not skyscrapers, but big buildings, you know? <laughs> um, and there were so many signs in Arabic and like just hearing Arabic music and being in a taxi and all of these things that, um, I don't know. It was like, I felt like I was in a movie or something. And, um, I got to meet my cousin that we were born like within a few weeks of each other. And, um, we stayed with one of my uncles and it's weird. I have an uncle and an aunt who live in, um, Amman together. And I don't think either of them actually are able to go back to Palestine. And I think for different reasons, my, and they live like half a mile from each other in Amman and they don't speak to each other <laughs> because like, <laughs> something my uncle's wife said about my aunt 
and I don't even remember what it is now, but it's been like years and they don't really speak to each other. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so that was fun to like navigate and not really understand why like we couldn't just see all of them together. We had to go to like my uncle's house and hang out with him, but like we're staying at my aunt's house because she has a bigger house and there's more room. It was just like a whole thing. Um, but it was really cool to like a lot of my cousins speak English who live in uh, Jordan because there's more access to English. And so, um, and there was like a lot more kids, I would say my, in my age range at that time. And so it was exciting to hang out and like, I think we played computer games and stuff and the food though, like everything I've ever dreamed of having like at my fingertips was just there because growing up in this country, like it's so hard to find literally anything that is the same in the Middle East. And there's a lot of things, you know, that are more popular now, which sadly is only because of like the Gulf War and the war in Iraq that like hummus is now popular in falafel. Like growing up though, you could never find that particularly where I grew up in New Mexico and so, and then growing up in Reno in 2000s, like, yeah, there was a pita pit, I think, and <laughs> we didn't eat there, so, um, but Palestine, like, in that trip, Palestine was, like, the big thing, that was why we're going, and it also was, like, looming the whole time, because I didn't know what to expect. And I knew that we would have to interact with the Israelis. And, like, I have been terrified of the Israelis my whole life. And so it was a really, like, it was in the back of my mind the whole time. And I felt like I couldn't relax while we were there and really enjoy Jordan. Because we were, like, there just to go to Palestine. And the reason is because I don't believe my dad is able to travel through Tel Aviv. So, like, the only airport, really, in in Palestine is in Tel Aviv. And we would have to fly in and then cross through the separation wall um, that separates the West Bank from the rest of Israel in order to, like, get to the village. And so, because of all of the layers of that and having family in Amman, we travel... To Amman first, stay for a few days, and then we have to go through what's called the Allenby Bridge and um, cross through Jordanian customs and then through Israeli customs and then through Palestinian customs in order to get to the West Bank and then drive an hour to get to Kufrain. <laughs> and so the entire process takes anywhere between eight to ten hours depending on how the israelis are feeling and it can be delayed by anything and so um we went and we had problems almost immediately because the jordanians didn't want my father to pass because they had on record that he had a jordanian passport but he didn't have it with him and so it was like we had all this build up and like being in Jordan already for a few days and wanting to go and feel like we're getting the trip started. Um, 
and we couldn't make it because he didn't have this passport. And he literally hasn't used his Jordanian passport since, like, the 80s. And so after being at the Jordanian border for, like, a couple of hours trying to figure it out, we ended up deciding to, like, head back to the city. My dad started talking to the taxi driver that was going to take us back, and he said, well, you know there is another bridge that's like further up north and we could try that bridge, but it's for uh, foreigners only. So just show them your American passport and, and just see like if they'll let you in since you have your kids with their American passports. And like, we only have American passports. We don't have any identification that would say that we're um, citizens anywhere else or, you know, residents, anything. And, um we it we drive for two hours in this taxi after already waiting <laughs> and get to this other bridge and like immediately it's very different the jordanian side is like barely any security whereas the other one there's like a whole building you have to park and get out this one is like kind of like the the control points so like the veggie control thing from california where it just is like you drive through it and um, they wave us through without barely looking at our papers. And then we get to the Israeli side, and it is, like, fancy. And that's when I knew that, like, something was off. <laughs> because where we were before, it was, like, busy and loud, and there was a lot of people. And then we were at this crossing, and there's, like, barely anyone. And we go in... And it's this very, like, polished um, building, and it's very clean. And there are, there's, like, my family, and then um, a bunch of Israeli, like, soldiers. And they're all in, like, green fatigues, and most of them are armed. And in Israel, they have mandatory military service. And I don't know if this is, like, just because the bulk of their military are young or, like, they specifically put dumbass 18 and 19-year-olds on the border, like, to fuck with people. But it is all, like, 18 and 19-year-olds who don't give a shit about anyone else. And it was such a weird experience to me because they looked so diverse. There was, like, a black woman and a woman who looked white and there was a redhead and there was just like so many different kinds of people who identify as Israeli and that all of them are wearing the same uniform and it was so like I don't know it was kind of a mind fuck to me because I just always have this picture of Israeli soldiers in my head and how they look and so to see like a black woman with braids and like have a thick Hebrew accent it just like me for a loop um but they're so they have like all of these um metal detectors and it's like you're at the airport you just have to put all your things through the conveyor belt and all of this and they like pat you down and there were two other like groups there was one man who was like on a pilgrimage and then there was a palestinian family um, but there, it was like an old man and his wife and then their young son. And we walk up and give them the papers, give them our passports, and they like take them and start processing them. 
while they're doing that, they like took the religious man aside and then started having him remove all of his clothing, like basically in front of everyone. And then there was um, the man that was sitting next to us, the only other group there. They were asking him where he was born, and he continued to say the name of his village. And the the woman taking, you know, his information said, "I this that village doesn't exist. I don't understand where where are you where were you born?" And he said, "I was born in this village, but it doesn't exist anymore." And she said, "I don't. What do you mean?" And then he had to tell her the Hebrew name of the village of the city that now stands where his village was. And again, like, I don't know if it is truly ignorance on her part, like she didn't understand what he was saying, or if it is like reinforcing like their beliefs over ours. And the fact that there's so few of us there, like that is the only people at this crossing. And then the other crossing it takes hours to go through is again, like a display because it's like only Palestine or the, that's the, the Allenby bridge is the only bridge that Palestinian citizens are able to cross through or residents. And so we then get called back to the counter and someone who looks more official than the people at the counters before doing taking all the information came and told us that we were not allowed to cross or that my father was not allowed to cross at that point. And they were like, what? <laughs> or we were like, what do, you, what, what do you mean? And the woman told us that my father is a Palestinian, like he has hawiya, so he is a Palestinian national. And so he has to have his hawiya, and he's not allowed to cross at that bridge. He has to use the one that's for Palestinian nationals. And so my sister started like yelling at the woman saying this man has lived in America longer than he's ever lived here. He should be treated as an American citizen. He has an American passport, just like the rest of us. And the woman said, regardless, he has a hawiya and he has to cross at the other bridge. And my brother and my sister and I just started crying. We didn't know like whether or not we were going to get through at all because my father's Jordanian passport that was blocking us from getting through to the Israeli side of the Allenby Bridge was in America. And so we had spent two hours coming to this other bridge, the only other way we, we would have been able to get in, and my father wasn't going to be able to cross. And as we're crying, my dad is not like, oh, it's okay, we'll figure it out. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. He looked at us and he said, this is what it means to be Palestinian. And the fact that like we always I don't know. I had a really hard time with that specifically for a long time because it was like that is when we became Palestinian in my head, like for a long time. That's how I looked at it. And I don't know if that's what my father intended, but that's how it came across. And so it really 
makes me feel like we earn being Palestinian through the like suffering we have to go through and I don't like thinking of our identity like that thinking of our heritage like that because it's so much bigger than the occupation and longer than the occupation I struggled for a long time to feel comforted by my father's words when he looked at us and he just said this is what it means to be Palestinian he didn't say sometimes it just goes like that or you know it'll be okay it'll be all right and at the time you know i didn't understand and it wasn't until i got older and i was reading between the world and me by tanahisi codes um which is a book written as, as a letter to his son um and tanahisi takes this uh structure actually from James Baldwin in James Baldwin's 1963, The Fire, uh, The Fire Next Time. And in it, um, in, in Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me, his son is upset when um, the murder of Michael Brown wasn't held accountable. And he didn't tell him it would be okay he he walked in on his son crying and he didn't you know tell him it would be all right he didn't comfort him because he knew that his son's reality was much more similar to um to the the um uh, to the victims of police brutality and to the victims of white supremacy and to um the people who have been murdered versus the people who are acquitted versus the people who are treated as innocent. And once I read that, it made me think about my own experience and how similar, similarly, I suppose, I felt that my father couldn't tell us it would be all right. He couldn't tell us it would be okay because it isn't. It isn't all right, and we don't know if it will be okay, ever. And at the same time, the old man who just had to explain how his village was destroyed came over and offered to take us to Ramadla for my father and to like take us and meet, uh, meet with, take us to our uncle, basically. And to me, this man, like, met these three kids, literally does not know us at all, doesn't know my father, but, like, because they understand the experience and what's at stake by, like, us not being able to go through, they would have been willing to do that. And to me, like, that's what it means to be Palestinian is like being part of a bigger story, a bigger experience. And so we went back to Jordan. <laughs> we went back to Amman. And we had to have my mom send us my dad's passport by DHL. And I think that we ended up going to 
Dubai like instead for like a little bit of time to wait for the ID to show up or whatever. And then we went again once we had the ID to the Allenby Bridge. And that's like what sucks is like we went through all of that and we didn't even get to the hard part because the hard part is anytime you fucking interact with Israelis. And so we have my dad's Jordanian passport. We get through the Jordanian side just fine. We go. Now we have to like sit on a bus. We have to get off the bus more than once. It's like searched multiple times for explosives, all of this shit. And we get out and it is like crazy. It is like a bus station exploded. There's people in bags everywhere. And there's just like hundreds of people. And they have like multiple lines that you have to go through. And there's like a line already when you get outside. And there's somebody outside that, or there's a counter of people outside checking IDs. And they mark your ID a certain category. And then you have to go through the metal detector. And then you have to go and speak to the people in customs. Every single step of the way, there's young Israeli soldiers holding guns. Like, not all of them are even in full fatigue. Some of them are straight up in, like, jeans and a t-shirt holding an AK-47. And so, like, (laughs) it's scary. There's a lot going on, and it's all in Arabic or Hebrew. And I was extremely overwhelmed. And at the same time, my father has a hawiyah, and so he has to go through a different line than we do. And so we walk up and hand them our passports and they put stickers on the back of our passport and they mark us like a certain category. And that's what tells the people, I don't know, whatever. We go through the metal detector just fine. My dad goes the line for Palestinian nationals. Within like 20 minutes, he's done. They had his ID card on file from like decades ago and had pulled it up because like they knew exactly who the hell he was. And then my sister then had to take up the lead uh, for me and my brother and her. We handed them the three passports and they took them, whatever, came back, gave us mine and my brother's passport and told my sister she had to wait. And then we sat on the bridge for hours. (laughs) And they interviewed her and, like, made her write out a questionnaire. And this is the other thing is, like, they, they never tell you why. They never give you a reason as to why they, like, make people wait. And so we're just left with, like, these theories. And the only theory that we have is that, like, they because she's in college, they had her sign or put what she studies, and she said criminal justice. And so we think that maybe they thought she had a gun or she could carry a gun or like they weren't we weren't sure but they held us up for hours we finally got through and it's another few bus rides but overall it was probably like six to eight hours of just being on the bridge waiting and this is the thing like the entire bridge is crossing the jordan river and it's like half a mile from like where we start 
to where we end up, where Jericho is. And so it spits you out right into Jericho. And it's weird because, like, (laughs) there is Palestinian security or Palestinian, like, customs. And I've only gone through it, like, once, even though I've gone through Palestine multiple times. So I can't exactly remember, like, why. I don't think we came through, though, like, when we entered that way. Like, I think we just got in a taxi and went to Jericho. I don't think we had to go through Palestine. But I think when you exit, you have to. And so then it just is like this immediate culture shock. Like from being in Amman to then being in Jericho, it is like you can feel the difference. And it just is much more, it's poorer. Like it is the difference between being in a larger city, you know, and a small one. But at the same time, Jericho is like the longest continuously civil or lived in city in the world it's like over a thousand i think the year that we were there it was celebrating it's like thousand year or millionth year or something crazy no no million does i don't know something crazy um and my aunt and her husband had a restaurant there at the time and i think we like stopped and had dinner at the restaurant before we ended up continuing to go to Palestine or to, to Kofarain where my um, grandma and grandfather and like the rest of the family lives where my dad's from and so it just was like also weird that we're sitting at this restaurant my uncle owns in Jericho and it's like oh this is you know where Judas came and did whatever <laughs> it's like some th- amount of temptation or I don't know just all these like ancient sites sprinkled around my uncle's restaurant while we're like sitting there smoking hookah or like everyone else <laughs> smoking hookah and it just was like this surreal experience that like this really is my life like this is where I'm from and it just had never felt real to me I guess until sitting there and at the same time like finally we had made it and knowing that we're still not there i don't know so it takes like an hour an hour and a half to get from jericho to um Kufrain, and you have to go through these hills and there's a lot of winding roads and things and sometimes there's checkpoints because the israelis have their own roads that they use that palestinians aren't allowed to be on and then they also just have random checkpoints to make sure that everything's, I don't know, whatever, because they want to. And I don't think on the first night we passed any. We went into the village just fine. And Kufrain is like at the bottom of this, almost at the bottom of this valley. And so you leave from like the main highway, kind of, and you go through a village called Nebisaleh, which is where... um, a famous activist, Ahed Tamimi, is from. And you continue to go down the valley, and Kufra'in, like, starts with um, some of my family's land called Dubwara. And we, like, drove through, and it's kind of, like, getting dark, and you can't really, like, see anyone. 
um because there's not like street lights or anything and we get to the what seems like or feels like the center of the village and my um jiddu and jiddu's house is like full of people and the doors explode and just people spill into the street and surround the car and we're like brought in but everybody is like hugging and kissing us as we're like going to the table <laughs> and everyone is like everybody's just so glad to see us and there's like a whole um meal that's ready to go and there's like people i've never even seen before hard of like kissing me and um just like praying over me and just like loving over me um and my siblings and i think they made fool um green fool fool khadra the first night with um Lan, I don't even remember. Um, but it was beautiful, and I just remember so being exhausted, but like feeling like I could finally relax, like feeling like literally since I'd left San Francisco that I had been building this tension. And then sitting down and eating, surrounded by all of these people who knew me, and even though I didn't know them, it felt like I could finally relax. Um, and the whole time we were there, it was like kind of hard because I, again, like my I didn't really speak Arabic at this time, and so it was. Um, difficult to communicate and there weren't as many like kids my age so I spent a lot of time like with my brother and my sister and we also just wanted to like be there you know what I mean like we wanted to just let people do their thing we didn't want to be entertained we just kind of wanted to like vibe out and that's not really <laughs> in their vocabulary there's they have to like host you know what I mean and so um I don't know we got taken to do a lot of things like I went to a lot of different wedding parties which was really cool and going to different people's but I had no idea who they were but they're like cousins and cousins of cousins and every single time that we went the like wedding singer would stop to do a verse about us because we're like visiting from America and I would just hear the word America and <laughs> just be like oh shit and my dad's like smiling from ear to ear and just like waving at people and so many different kinds of weddings too because they have like big big ass parties and I went to this wedding that they had like people walking around with trays of just like stuff on them and one of them was like a tray of cookies and candy and the other was a tray of different kinds of cigarettes <laughs> and they're just like walking around the people just like sitting and drinking tea and giving out candy and cigarettes for the wedding and then there's another one like oh one of my favorite like dubka singers was actually in the village next to us um like singing at somebody's wedding and so my uncle and my dad like took me in the middle of the night to go and see him and meet him and he like sang a verse from like my favorite 
song and like sang a verse about me and it was like yeah a really cool experience my brother and sister were pissed because we like ditched them (laughs) to go and do that um but it was also a really serious time in the summer of 2006 is when um three israeli soldiers were captured by some um extremists from hezbollah in lebanon and murdered and so israel responded by shelling the south of lebanon and it was the first act of aggression between um israel and lebanon in a few years and i didn't i remember when it happened like talking about it because we were there when it happened but i didn't understand like the severity because of like how the politics between lebanon and israel had been like i didn't understand why it was such a big deal or like what the reaction would be and it was towards the end of our trip or our time there but um at one point like we went walking in the morning through some of the land that we own and there were resistance fighters like sleeping under the olive trees and my um uncle like started telling us to like go back to the house just to like basically mind our business <laughs> mind and that's like how they treat it because it's like yeah that that's they don't want to be implicated but they also are not going to be like hey get the fuck out of here and so um a few nights after that um i uh woke up early in the morning and my sister was kind of like panicked and she told me to be quiet and she said that um, the Israelis had put the village under curfew and that we weren't allowed to leave the house and that they had been searching all of the houses um, for people and I guess that like they're looking for resistance fighters and she said that they were looking like house to house through the windows with the flashlights that are attached to their guns and like pointing them through the windows to look and it's like the middle of the summer and the windows are open and she said that when it happened and like she could see the light coming through the windows that she put her body over mine just to like cover it because she didn't want me to wake up what she thought would happen is that i would like wake up and get scared and scream and that they would kill us and so she just like laid over me and started praying and then she like prayed that my brother who was like sleeping across the room wouldn't wake up either and then by the time i had woken up the sun had come up and they were still in the village but they were now like marching through the streets and at the same time my cousins were like mocking their arabic hanging out of the window and so it's like in the same like 10 or 15 minutes that i've like woken up found out the the israelis are even there heard this story from my sister and then they're like marching down the street and my cousins are like yelling at them and so it just was like 
extremely jarring and it was the day that we were supposed to leave the village and so we were like really spooked didn't know if we would be able to leave really and whether or not we would still be under curfew and they never really lifted it because that's again how they are and so we weren't sure like whether or not we would get stopped like on our way out but our plan was to like leave in the afternoon and then spend the night in Jericho again before leaving and um we get in a taxi uh that uh, it was again was like a cousin who was driving it and we had like been spending enough time going to the city and stuff to know like where the checkpoints were that we had to like cross through and when you go through a checkpoint like it just is they ask to see your ID and they look at the people in the car and they usually like walk around the car with a mirror thing so they look under it and then they let you go and that's typically what happens and this time there had been like more um, checkpoints and so the way that we were used to going the dude the taxi driver like tried to go around it because there was a huge line because they had like tightened the restrictions or whatever they're doing more thorough searches so we're literally like driving through somebody's olive grove in the middle of the night to like avoid this checkpoint we end up way further than where we needed to be trying to get back to where we were going and we hit a checkpoint and this one was like much less busy but it was like basically just a it looked like a street light with like two soldiers standing underneath it and so we pull up and they make all of us get out of the car and we're in like this van and I'm wearing flip-flops and we open the door and I like the it's like one of those sliding ones and I step out but it's like taller than I realize and I drop my flip-flop. So I like bend down to like put it back on. And when I look up, the Israeli says, get up. And he has his gun in my face. And I just like stood up. And I honestly can't even remember like what happens after that. It just like, they looked at our IDs and like looked through the car, looked underneath again, the same shit. And told us we could get back in, but like, I was just, my mind was like ringing because I didn't know whether it was just, like, what was the intention? You know, was he just using it to gesture because that's what's in his hands? Or like, if I didn't get up, would I have died? Like, what is, because I know what they're capable of. And I see videos all the time of like people being murdered at checkpoints because they look like a threat. So if they already perceive us as a threat because we're coming through, I've been labeled a suicide bomber since before I was born. So like, is that what they thought? And I have no answers. And I just, like that instance has like stuck with me forever. And we continued on to Jericho and there were burning tires 
all through the streets because they didn't want the Israelis to get in. And Jericho is like one, the one place that like the Israelis don't really have any control. And so it felt like somewhat more stable, but then the fact that we still had to go through and face the Israelis the next day was like extremely terrifying. And the then the fact that it started with the Palestinians and seeing just like how hard it is for people who do want to go back and forth. You know what I mean? Like people who have lives in Jordan and like family still in Kufrain or like in Palestine in general and just like that back and forth and how traumatizing it is every time because like you're not in control whatsoever and everything is like what they say goes and I've never felt so expendable like they just look straight through you like you don't exist and <laughs> like I've been called a faggot I've been called all the fucking names in the book for being gay and for being Muslim but like no one has ever treated me the way Israelis treat me it is like a level of dehumanization that it just is violent it's like I do not exist and if I do I am some sort of like beast that should not have any say and is not valuable in any way and like I I just can't imagine living in that you know what I mean like the reason my cousins were so comfortable <laughs> to like mock them is because this is their life it's the same way that people like push limits with cops here because they know they're what they're capable of and they know like there's certain lines you can't allow people to cross and i think like they're so used to the bullying that happens and the psychological warfare that it just doesn't phase them anymore and it's something that like i still struggle with like that trip and then I had two more just like it and then it's like I don't know it feels I feel justified every time I think about these stories and the anger that I feel uh, towards these people because it's like I don't care if they're ignorant I don't want to give them a pass because like they have been downtrodden I was 12 wearing a neon green and yellow flip flop like I threatened them that much That was a lot, <laughs> but thank you so much for listening. This was the second episode of the True Gay 
Icon podcast. Thank you so much for um, taking time out of your day to hear a little bit more about me and my background. My next episode, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Palestine as well as um, how I came out. I actually came out in Palestine. So if you are interested um, in sending me an email or following along as I kind of figured out making these and what I'm talking about, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or wherever else really at True Gay Icon. This podcast is available um, on all major podcast platforms, so please, please, please share with your friends and family. If you think somebody would find the story interesting, let them know. Big shout out to a very important person, um, Jeff, for helping me record this episode. It's really hard. And um, please, I just wanted to like... The last part when I said that I don't care what these people have been through, that's a connotation that I don't want to be ambiguous about. Like, I want to acknowledge that anti-Semitism is a very real thing, um, and it's something that I continuously have to learn more about and unlearn, you know, the things that I have um, learned through our culture and, and through my own experience. And at the same time, my point is that it doesn't absolve them. It doesn't absolve anyone for the blatant human rights abuses that have happened and uh, continue to happen. This week, it's a, and during the election, over 70 Palestinians were displaced from their homes in the West Bank to make way for military training. And so this is something that is happening and it's happening now. And it's really important that we get better about understanding how our lives um, are connected because the same conversations we're having here about police brutality are connected to the conversations in Palestine. And these are the same systems. Thanks.